0: Welcome to McKinsey Talks Talent, featuring McKinsey leaders and talent experts, Brian Hancock and Brooke Weddle. I'm Lucia Rahili.
1: One thing that I'm hearing from my clients in the conversation about Gen AI is sometimes it starts with, well, what's the automation potential? What's the cost savings? Mm-hmm. But by the end of the conversation, it gets to, well, wait a minute, what's the revenue potential here?
0: That's Brian. He joins me and Brooke and Stanford professor Melissa Valentine, who's an expert in human-centered AI. We discuss all the potential effects, both good and bad, that Gen AI could have on talent and HR. Melissa, welcome to McKinsey Talks Talent. Thank you. I'm excited to talk to you guys. And Brooke and Brian, welcome back. Thanks, Lucia. Great to be here. So AI, and particularly Gen AI, have exploded into the business and even the popular lexicon in the past year. Melissa, talk to us about the phrase human-centered AI. What do we mean when we use that particular term of art?
2: Yeah, there's sort of different aspects to it, but that refers to kind of different paradigms of design. The way to think about it is just if you're really focused on augmenting human capabilities, then that would be human-centered AI. Um, So gen AI, right, it's just data. It's just a language model, right? But it's also all of the kind of social arrangements that have to happen around it for it actually to accomplish any of the things
0: where we see the potential. What does the research tell us? Are folks really that afraid of AI in the workplace and the threat it's likely or unlikely to pose to their jobs? I think the potential that people are seeing of
2: kind of their pair AI sort of helping them with their jobs, it seems like that's pretty easy for people to grasp. That doesn't seem super threatening from what they're seeing. I think it's a little bit hard to connect what we're seeing, you know, making a slide deck goes a lot faster or where your emails sort of get auto-completed to this sense of like existential job loss um, that people are sort of worried about. So I think that's more where the rhetoric with more of the fear is happening and this kind of removed, you know, macroeconomic sense that there will not be jobs in the future. The the local adoption seems to be uh, less threatening to people. Like in the 90s, uh, there were a lot of, um, sort of like labor economists and occupational researchers who were studying when digital technologies were coming online. And the trends that they were documenting is that some occupations were reskilled, they became augmented, and some o- occupations were de skilled, and some like new occupations came online. And I mean, we see from the 90s, like we're not currently in a moment of broad job loss at this moment. So the sort of predictions of um, job loss in the 90s, like, haven't really played out the way the more cataclysmic predictions have foretold. Um, there were so many changes, though. I mean, the changes in occupations between the 90s and now, I mean, it's profound what has happened. So there is going to be a lot of change. This is sort of like the discussion right now. Is this a continuous change? It's going to be a lot like it's been in the past where there's there are profound changes to what occupations look like, but there's not societal job loss across the board.
0: What are some ways of addressing skepticism and aversion to change, and overcoming early resistance to the adoption of Gen AI in the workplace? So I was really lucky. I got to do
2: a study at a tech company in San Francisco. Uh, Stitch Fix was the company that I was studying, and I I picked one of their data science teams to study. They were developing a new algorithm and trying to help their users adopt it, and by the end of the study they had actually gotten broad adoption across a huge department and they had really like reskilled their workers some of the key things was they looked at what the users were doing and then they had their like data science toolkit in mind and they were thinking to themselves you know how can we help them accomplish their goals better how can we use some of these data science capabilities that really augment people's analyses. So all of their framing was in terms of new capabilities. How can we help people do all of this better? I think that's pretty key. And then I would say the second piece that seemed really powerful was that they had a really talented user interface lead. So he would, the users were fashion buyers, so they would buy inventory. So he built a a UI that was like showing them the pictures of everything that they were stocking into inventory and pivot tables, and he created something where, like, the bubbles, picturing the clothes would get bigger depending on the volume of, you know, items that they were picking. So the users loved this. They came to the dashboard, and they started being able to use the pivot table, and it really unlocked for them what the algorithm was doing. It made it so much easier for them to explore what they had input. It let them explore what the algorithm was recommending. Um, It let them, like, play around with different ways they could make the decision, So the whole thing was really like set up around giving them, like augmenting them, giving them new capabilities and that framing. And I think the UI were really powerful in helping them adopt.
1: One thing that I'm hearing from my clients in the conversation about Gen AI is sometimes it starts with, well, what's the automation potential? What's the cost savings? Mm -hmm. But by the end of the conversation, it gets to, well, wait a minute, what's the revenue potential here? Because I think there's a real opportunity for us to sell better, better be in tune with Uh, The markets, better pick up on trends, better synthesize information across multiple sources to better ultimately serve our customers and then grow revenue. And the energy in the room shifts from this, uh, you know, conversation around, yep, those are the roles, those are the tasks, those are the pieces to, wow, there's huge potential here for untapped market opportunity. And if we could only go after it, is that similar to the type of thing you're there where capabilities lead to revenue growth and excitement?
0: Yeah,
2: exactly. That's a great way to put it.
0: Melissa, is adoption of Gen AI affected by employees' self-identity? I'm thinking particularly here of creative fields where folks may view algorithms as anathema or as a poor substitute for imagination or ingenuity, or even in the fashion example, just for, you know, years of experience and sort of acumen that's hard won.
2: Yeah, I think the importance of um, professional identity is really underexplored at present. And I think largely that's just because so much of this stuff is new and there hasn't been, you know, as much time for identities to evolve. Um, It's actually, it's reminding me of a great study um, at NYU. NASA scientists were learning how to use open innovation platforms So open innovation platforms where you can just like post a problem online and then someone else outside of the firm can solve it. So that's very threatening to scientists who are used to solving the problems themselves. So I think it was like a five year period where the NASA scientists identities kind of changed from being the ones who solved the problems to becoming the ones who sort of sought the solutions, I think is how the identity changed. So when I was at Stitch Fix, I saw something similar. My study was only about like over an 18-month period. So I wouldn't say that the identities had fully evolved by the time that I my study ended. But I did see that sort of like identity conflict that you're talking about. Because people don't go into fashion because they want to do optimization models, right? Like they go into fashion because they love fashion. Like the best fashion buyers were, they were so fashionable and they had really great relationships with vendors and they sort of had a pulse on like what was happening in the industry. But then these are the people who are supposed to be like in this dashboard, like looking at <laughs> risk and uncertainty and like, how am I optimizing? And like, where, what are the trade-offs that I'm making? So it was really a shift for them to have to recognize or just sort of like integrate what it meant to be a great fashion buyer with what it meant to use data in strategic ways and to support decision-making and to support strategic trade-offs and things like that.
1: How do you see this idea of co-pilot intersecting with identity?
2: I mean, if co-pilot is doing the tasks you didn't want to do in the first place, like calculating all of your financial metrics, then you're just, you're pleased. Like, look at this co-pilot, you know, helping me do all my math. Um, Versus you're saying, you know, if you're like a fashion person and then suddenly co-pilot is designing clothes for you, what does that mean? What does that do to your identity?
1: It's fascinating. It reminds me of uh, an article I read about a university English professor who is encouraging his or her students in using Gen AI tools because you need to write better than that. This is a baseline. This is a start, but this isn't replacing you providing the human insight, understanding. Et cetera, that's how you build on top. As we look, some of the biggest areas of potential are in marketing, are in sales, are in communications.
2: I think where it takes me is which of our products are good enough, right? When it's just like that first draft of Gen A, which of our business products are good enough like that? And then which ones are you really going to enhance with a lot of, you know, prototyping and interactivity and like human insight and creativity to it?
3: Also, how can you bring this more discerning lens of, of bias, right? And, and interrogating what you see for that bias, having that critical thinking layer. That seems to be something that we need to hone as a skill set here in terms of getting maximum value out of Gen AI.
2: Oh, yeah, I totally agree. I think the interesting thing that will be added to that is figuring out how to like evaluate it, how to like measure the impact. And sort of back to my Stitch Fix study, like some of some of the skills that I was seeing the fashion buyers have to learn how to be in the loop with the algorithm for is to measure the impact of their intuition. So the algorithm, and it wasn't Gen AI in that case, but the algorithm would sort of make a recommendation and display the metrics associated with its recommendation. The buyers would go in and like override a recommendation. And then the algorithm could like automatically tell it, okay, you're imposing that intuition here. And I'm just making this number up, but it's going to cost you like $1 of revenue or something like that. And then they could be like, okay, that's worth it. What I'm trying to say is like learning how to measure the impact of human intervention into whatever the algorithm is putting out, I think that's a skill that's going to be needed, even for Gen AI.
3: And I'm thinking from a, a a broader organizational culture standpoint. So if I have my co-pilot and it's on, you know, markdown and it's giving me advice, does that make it less likely for me to interact with the pricing department or with finance, right? Are there kind of silos we're creating by enabling people with this copilot? And we all know that organizations rest on a series of values. Trust is important. Relationships are important to making a company run well. Any thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Let's just think for a second about the way some companies have set up um, algorithms as rating systems, because it does end up as sort of like in- this interactive algorithmic data product for workers. So a good example I can give you is TripAdvisor. You have all sorts of ratings and all sorts of data that goes into TripAdvisor. Now, hotels, when they're like trying to react to a TripAdvisor, when you have algorithms that collect all this data and then give them this one score and the hotels don't know where that came from, So they end up having this opaque algorithmic rating that they're trying to work with to figure out to learn how to become better. And I'm using the hotel example just because I think people can imagine what it's like for a hotel to get a list from a professional rater of what to change versus dealing with TripAdvisor. But that same sort of dynamic is happening with workers, especially in online labor markets. They're having like one score that like rates how they're doing. And it's been pretty hard for people to learn how to get better. What does it mean to get better when you don't have like a professional manager? You just have this like kind of algorithm that is interacting to tell you, you know, what it means to get better.
1: And what that makes me think of, Melissa, is the potential for uh, large language models to help people sift through all of the unstructured data and comments to come back with the list of what you need to do. One of the use cases I've heard that uh, managers are interested in is, like, for example, if they got an employee complaint, you know, somebody that is responsible for a region that might have, you know, thousands of employees, is that a one-off or is that a trend? And is there something that I can gather from data to quickly help me understand that? Is there a promise of some of the future uh, to, to actually go through and say, hey, That one piece actually does look like an outlier. We don't see it anywhere in Glassdoor. We don't see it in any of the surveys or other things. Or could come through and say, actually, thematically, here are the four things that have come up from our employee surveys and what we see online, what we see in Reddit. And I wonder if some of these technologies can actually provide a lot more of the color behind what's happening and some recommendations of what to do.
2: So what you're calling out, and I think this is totally right. Like, imagine that all of the all of the information, all of the sentiment, is sort of in play, and you can you, you can learn from that. And I think that's right.
0: I'm wondering if there are areas of resistance to adoption that are specific to HR, and in particular, you know, are folks afraid that Gen AI might tell HR who to hire, and maybe more forebodingly, who to fire on the basis of these kinds of complaints that surface through the algorithm and so forth.
2: So just like you're talking about, like a lot more surveillance, a lot more automated hiring and firing. I mean, clearly you're going to see people resist that. You know, it's not sort of an empathetic way to configure that. In the same organization, you can see some occupations have a lot of autonomy and are likely to become augmented. And in that same organization, you might have lower status occupations who are subject to a lot more Um, surveillance, a lot more algorithmic management, a a lot more of the unpleasant aspects of algorithmic control. A pretty famous, well-known example is there was like a newspaper article about a driver who was like fired by a bot, right? He had no recourse. He couldn't even talk to HR to sort of figure out what had happened. And it was, um, he thought it was like an unfair thing that happened and he couldn't talk to anybody. So I think that's where we're seeing a lot of resistance.
3: You know, one frame on this is control of employees. Another is using these approaches to try to unleash employees in new ways, in productive ways, to get them from burnout to thriving. I mean, one of the organizations that I'm working with is trying to build what they would call is a new managerial operating model that takes all of the, the pulsing data that we know many organizations use, marrying that up with management science around What are the practices that help teams, you know, drive to productive outcomes? Uh, Marrying that up with what do we know about, you know, more broadly management practices that... Help to drive performance outcomes in an organization, and and you know to be clear, this you know you'd need to uh, think through ways in which to cultivate manager buy in, employee buy in, right? Make this two way. I think that would absolutely be part of it. But then you could imagine a system that's nudging employees to the best version of themselves, right? Um, that's the the big idea on that. I think it's quite exciting, but. Clearly, lots of minefields, right, to work through making this not kind of a a control state, but rather an enabling state.
1: One of the things that I'm excited about, and I was in a roundtable where there was some energy around, was the idea of, you know, Gen AI applying it with a design lens on the manager. But let's look at all of the things that a manager hates to do taking away some of the administrative tasks that they need to do, you know, having a co-pilot for them. But I'd love to hear, you know, your thoughts on kind of using a, a design lens to take away the work that managers do that drives them nuts.
2: Yeah. So like design thinking, using Gen AI to really examine the middle managers. I think that's really smart. Because I think a lot of the focus at present is on sort of like frontline decision-making doctors. I'm talking about fashion buyers, you know, merchandisers and the pricing algorithm. But something that I'm super fascinated by is managers are regularly making organizational design decisions. And organizational design, management science is not a science. It is an art. So like if they were more data-driven or if they had more sort of empirical insight to the organizational design decisions that they made, I think, I think it would unlock some really exciting stuff. I would love to watch that.
0: Melissa, on the question of organizational design, what's an example of the way AI or Gen AI might alter the way companies staff project work? And here I'm thinking of the experiments you've been running on flash teams and flash organizations in particular.
2: Flash teams, they would be doing a task and then the bot would sort of come in and like make a recommendation of a new thing that they should try, uh, like more centralized decision making, um, more turn taking in their decision making or something like that. So sort of small interventions. But over time, we were able to help the teams experiment to those recommendations and show that the ones that were getting recommendations specifically on their organizational design, over time would get better. Uh, To the question of staffing, so what we do with Flash Teams is you can have the project, uh, our software platform could anticipate the need for different roles and then reach out to a labor market in this case um, and sort of automatically assemble the team and then pull the team together and structure the team's work over time. So show them like who should be passing off work to who when, um, who like where to upload the work, who's the manager in this case, things like that.
1: Is that largely leveraging freelance marketplaces or are there other ways that you're tapping into the labor market to pull in uh, those flash teams?
2: We've done uh, research with companies who are doing sort of like internal deployments of flash teams. So I think in the past it was easier to do with labor markets because they are online and they have such smart platforms. Um but yeah, you can you can do it with a large company and internal workforce still.
0: Everything we're talking about hinges on data and the proliferation of data and the acceleration of the proliferation of data. How do you assess data privacy risks in the HR context?
3: That is coming up in 100% of my conversations on Gen AI data, not just from the HR angle, which of course is extremely important, but even you know, take the McKinsey context where you have people serving competitors, right? How do you segment data thoughtfully? How do you tag data in in one way? So, you know, certain data is fungible, portable, other data is not. Who makes that call? How do you do that globally across multiple countries? It's a really complex challenge that I think a, a lot of people are thinking about already, but one that is pretty fundamental to getting the Gen AI part of the equation and the the impact from that, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Like even just as people are kind of like typing in their prompt questions, like that's still telling something about the company 100%. that they're.
3: Yes.
1: So it ma- it makes me think of you know the risks more broadly. For me, uh, and we've mentioned this on a prior podcast, one of the things I worry about is the risk that we become less interesting. We don't have the time to really kind of push the boundaries for what really does make exceptional answers and exceptional outcomes. So that's my counterintuitive risk.
3: Yeah, I I mean, the other one that's come up a lot in the conversations that I've had is if you go to a model where you are assisted by an algorithm, by a copilot, whatever, the concern is around experience accumulation, the um, act of failing and the things that you learn from that. And there's value in that in terms of one's professional development. And so if I'm assisted in these ways, if I always have this running head start, what am I giving up, especially for more junior colleagues? What am I not experiencing that could end up giving me less of an insight right down the road? So another one that I put out there. Yeah, totally.
2: Yeah, like sort of like the deprecation of expertise, like the more we're aided, then we're not going through all of the reps where we develop the expertise over time. Totally.
0: One last question might be, does using the lens human-centered AI change at all the way that we assess the impact or the success of AI tools in HR? What's the sort of protocol there?
2: Um, Well, I want to tell, can I tell like kind of like one last story that I feel like empathizes both with the workers and then also with the developers? We were like looking at, you know, algorithmic rating of flash teams. We really wanted to make sure that all of this algorithmic management was very worker centered, human centered. We were like playing around with the idea of like adding like a variable to the algorithm. Like that was, you know, some sort of like weighting factor for human centeredness. And there was like a quarter deadline for the company that we were collaborating with. And then like all of a sudden, like we needed business results like tomorrow. So we were like, okay, well, just this once we're going to do it without this variable in and then bam. Right. That's how it happens. (laughs) Like just the I guess what I'm trying to say is just like the pressure, like the pressure of, you know, needing to have business results fast. Like that is like those are the moments of tradeoffs. You need to have the space to be able to do something human centered because it takes longer. It's harder.
3: Yep. Couldn't agree more.
1: Yeah, I I, I think picking up, Melissa, what you were talking about, I think that to me calls to mind the classic short-term versus long-term trade-offs. There may be a real short-term profit trade-off that, hey, the algorithm has some really cool things it can do right now. Let's get it out there. But in the longer term, having the human-centered approach is the one that's going to uncover even more opportunities for employees and for customers, helps with the sustainability of organizations, helps unlock new markets, new sets of opportunities, new sets of insights.
3: Yeah, for me, I really resonated with what you said. Melissa, that consistently, right? You know, the kind of the classic performance and health scorecard, if you will, around AI, I think will be really important so that in those moments where push comes to shove and everyone is tempted to go back to performance, you got the health side of the equation right there staring back at you. I think that's going to be really critical. And if that means moving a little bit more slowly, then I, I think the trade off is clear.
2: Yeah, exactly.
3: Melissa Valentine, thanks so much for
0: joining us today. Yeah, thanks, you guys. This was really fun. I enjoyed it. Thanks so much. Thanks, Melissa. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Lucia Rahilly with Brian Hancock and Brooke Whittle. Subscribe to McKinsey Talks Talent wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time and be well.